Hello, it is Sanson Jones here, and this is the Lifefulness Podcast. And today we're interviewing an amazing guest. His name is Mark McCurgo. He has is a very good friend of mine. We met eight years ago when Sunday Assembly started, and he was really pivotal in helping us to grow a movement of non-religious congregations, which then spread all over the world. And so clearly for a Lifefulness podcast, which is about how can we adapt the best parts of the congregation and spiritual community in a way that everyone can take part, is the ideal guest. He also has got loads of experience in other areas, host leadership. You didn't know about it before, but it is going to be so useful, a really useful idea for anyone who's in business in I'd say in almost any way if you're interested in leadership it's a wonderful idea solutions focused work that's another part of his uh, expertise which he goes and gives a little summary of and his latest project which is village in the city there is so much to learn he is a great guest and I love him so I hope that you love him too if you in turn love what we're talking about the life on this project is more than just a podcast we are a community that meets in small groups and to help each other in life and these group coaching sessions will allow you to focus on what's most important to you then we're going to help you meet other people who are also great in your area so come join the community and we will help you grow your community locally and with that no more ado, no more ado. don't. This is Mark McCurgo. Let's kick off. Mark, it is wonderful to have you here. Uh, Mark McCurgo is an old friend. A How would you describe yourself, Mark? You're a man of many hats and many... You're a consultant. Is that how you describe yourself? Uh, so, hi, Sardison. Hi, everybody. Yes, great to be with you. So, my first line of my bio these days is author... I've just Hello. completed my sixth book, uh, most of which are in the field of management, change management, coaching and leadership. Uh, but I also say I'm a consultant, I'm a speaker, uh, I am a community builder uh, these days with my new project Village in the City, which is about yeah. encouraging people to build micro local communities wherever they are. And I'm doing that here in Edinburgh and I'm encouraging people to do that around the world and connecting them all up together. So there's lots and lots of things to talk about. It's uh, it's annoying how nowadays there's so many jobs where you just you can't just say a simple word. I do this. Like even the people uh, uh, the, like we know in the performing arts are like I make films. I'm also a musician. I do this. Uh, lots of slashes around. I'm a musician as well, by the way. I oh, play yeah. saxophone. Uh, I've been in, I'm known to do some DJing. Uh, I've played the keyboards a little bit as well. I love jazz and uh, I played I played jazz at kind of professional level many years ago with a ran, running a uh, contemporary jazz orchestra, as we called it at the time in Bristol in the 1990s, which did Glastonbury and the South Bank Centre in London, amongst other things. So so I'm still love jazz, too, but very much these days as a as a, you know, uh, as a hobby and a thing to do because I love it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The uh, I was going to bring up your uh, trip to Glastonbury, but you beat me to the punch. And uh, yeah, and so the way we start off is uh, there's so much stuff to talk about because you're really involved in Sunday Assembly, you're really involved in building this new uh, community initiative. Uh, but it'd be great to kick off just by asking you the question we almost always ask people, which is what was the religious or spiritual or philosophical background to your childhood? Well, uh, my parents were very devout Christians. Uh, we were in a village in Suffolk near Bury St Edmunds and my father was a church warden and my mother played the organ uh, at church brilliantly. Wonderful keyboard player. We played the organ with feet as well, proper pedals and two keyboards and different stops for each verse and the, really the full Monty of church organ playing, which was, was lovely. Uh, and so they were absolutely kind of pillars of the community in our in our little uh, village there uh, and my grandfather my father's father was a church warden for 50 years uh, as well in his village in Sussex and uh, my father was a church warden in two different places for 50 years and so you could say as a Sunday assembly organizer now uh, and village in the city organizer I'm playing out my genetic heritage <laughs> by <laughs> being the warden of a non-religious church or something like that uh, you know um, uh, here we are in the 21st century, 
So it's different, but in some ways it's perhaps a bit the same as well. The, yeah, it's so interesting how I, when speaking to people who want to get involved in Sunday Assembly and the life on this project, there's so many folk who've got these really deep church roots. And I think there's a certain type of person, a certain archetype of someone who just wants a place to give back, who wants to go and be able to... I, don't, I often think about it in terms of like the tongue that <laughs> where, where like, you know, when you eat something which is delicious and it goes and hits like all those different flavors. And there's something about like church, which goes and allows you to go and uh, hit many of the different, uh, the taste zones of the soul, maybe. It took me a long time to come around to that. I mean, I stopped going to church as soon as I reasonably could get away with lying in on a Sunday morning as a teenager. Because uh, I, I didn't get all the, you know, the sort of spiritual, the, the religious thing, the kind of, you know, the, the hardcore religious thing, not for me. But then I had a gap year uh, back in the 70s, late 70s, and I volunteered at a Salvation Army hostel, homeless men's hostel. Uh, and I learned a great respect for the Salvationists because they really do it, you know. They, they have a fairly, fairly hardcore view of Christianity and they really, really do it. Uh, and so I have great respect for people who, who can do that. Um, I have slightly less respect for people who sort of mouth, mouth the words and then don't do it. But I, I enjoyed working with the Salvationists and, uh, and they also have had all the good tunes at that point too. Of course, Sunday Assembly has now entered the fray in a different way. But, you know, the, the founder of the Salvation Army uh, famously said, why should the devil have all the good tunes? And he had a point. And so Salvation Army, I enjoyed Salvation Army meetings, which I went along to, you know, to be mostly to be polite, but, but also they were fun and they were uplifting and there was, a, there was a brass band and there were songs to clap along with and it was all pretty high energy and uh, it was actually a very good way of uh, taking an hour on a Sunday morning. Yeah, when uh, you were at our wedding and you were provided, you both DJ'd and also played some sax at the start, we got married by a Salvationist, uh, Janet, from the Camberwell branch, because my uh, uh, image in my wife's uh, community building project was based out of that. And I, you know, it was the Salvationist who, when the Grenfell Tower burned down, that they had the capacity to send a truck which gave bacon sandwiches to the firemen, to people surviving. And it's something, if you long-time listeners would have heard me say this before, but like the organization is the best part of religion. Like if not, it's just like new age stuff. It's like, oh, you want all the spirituality shenanigans from it, but who's gonna like go and wipe that guy's ass? And that being said, I'm not very good at, I don't, but that's not my, sort of area of expertise either but like it's that really hardcore like providing the organizations which turn like the noblest of feelings into making a difference in people's lives and, and it's nitty-gritty have... on the on the ground stuff i was there were the floods uh, two or three years ago people may remember and i found a lot of pictures of religious groups from from the midland cities particularly sikhs uh, who have a great tradition of feeding people turning up in these sort of flood flood bound villages with huge <laughs> buckets of lovely curry and uh, and food you know hot food for people to, to to help the volunteers and help the villagers and everything coming out of the city because they wanted to help and i think this is so on it um there's a, a thing that these days people sometimes call themselves spiritual but not religious and uh, there is an argument i think that says one might want to be religious but not spiritual because that you're doing that practice of serving others serving yourself looking after yourself uh, responding to your community but you don't need the you know the religious piece the spiritual piece rather to necessarily to do that in the in that sort of supernatural way yeah, it's uh, in this whole area. And I, I have a nightmare going, well, I'm spiritual, but I'm actually a total atheist because I think that if you scanned my brain, it would be lighting up in the same places as a religious person would light up. And you end up really losing people about two words in. Uh, and I, when you were talking about the curry, Mark, because we've shared many a curry together. Like imagine if you're sort of, you're wet, you're cold, you've had a tough time, and then a curry harkens into view there, turns around the corner, <laughs> nothing could be better. And I think in, in that you've also gone and answered our normal second question, which is like, what is one thing which the world could go and learn from religions? And I'm going to count your answer as, you know, the actual on the ground doing good part of it, the nitty gritty. Yes, rolling the sleeves up, uh, getting stuck in and being open 
to do that for others, not just for your own community, but to do it for whoever needs it. I think that it's, it's easy to do stuff that benefits you and your mates, and that's fine. We should all do that. But it's, then it's how do you go to the wider world with that same message and that same action? Uh, and uh, as people have probably figured out, we've known each other for some time. It'd be great if you could go and uh, uh, give your version uh, of the story, because Mark has been there at the like right at the beginning of Sunday Assembly. We you got in touch with Pippa and I when we started. And if people haven't listened to the podcast before, what were you, what have you been doing? But if you have, uh, then uh, you'll know that Sunday Assembly is a a movement of secular congregations, uh, church without the God bit, but good people with the God bit are welcome. Uh, and when we soon after we did the first one, you got in touch asking uh, if there was something that you could do to help. Yeah, so I, my wife Jenny is a humanist funeral celebrant. So she'll do a funeral without God and she's very good at it. And they're always very well received, these, these things. And we used to talk idly, Jenny and I, about how nice it would be to have a sort of regular humanist type thing. Not have to wait for someone to die. That seems a bit hardcore. Uh, but how regular humanist get-togethers, a bit like church. And then towards the end of 2012, beginning of 2013, we saw the Sunday Assembly being advertised as starting up in London, close to where we happened to be living at the time. So went along, and I'll be honest, I went thinking, well, we'll have a look, and if it's no good, I may be able to do something better. But it was far better than anything I could have done. It was wonderful. And it, it combined this great message with this lightness of touch that I think Pippa and Sanderson brought from their comedian uh, skills. And it was just magnificent. And I came away thinking, wow, that's fantastic. And I think it was actually after the second one, because there was a live band as well, always, there always is. And I got in touch with Sanders Bibber after the second one, thinking, well, I have skills. I can play in the band, perhaps on saxophone and clarinet. And I've also organised networks, international networks, with no money. And uh, there seem to be people starting to get in touch, wanting Sunday assemblies you know, wherever they were. And uh, so I thought, well, I wonder if I have some various skills that might be on offer. Uh, so I got in touch and we had a sausage sandwich at the Riverside Studios in Hammersmith. And uh, the and I was in a couple of weeks, I was playing clarinet in the Sunday Assembly Band, which was fantastic. And uh, th then we, uh, that we had a meeting about with people who were keen to help with the organising. And Sanderson said, would you like to be network coordinator? And I said, yeah, all right, I'll do that. So there we were, we were starting to talk to people around the world who were keen on the idea of Sunday Assembly and wanted to do one. And we started to develop resources and connections and trainings and online calls and things uh, to support them in that. And yeah, it it's grew been from there. Uh, amazing. That, like, me, I think that's something which I didn't know about church before, because I think maybe like you, I had been... Uh, I had to go to church when I was at school, but that's, you know, reluctant Anglicanism. Uh, you're just belting out the tunes as much, as loudly as you can. And depending on how puerile you are, really, really yelling come uh, as loudly as possible, just because I'm that immature. Uh, and oh, come all you faithful, like really hitting the start of it hard. Mark's wincing on the other end of the line, but he, he maybe didn't sing the church songs the way I did. But like, I never... I didn't, I wasn't part of that community myself. And like the way it acts as a dog whistle for like amazing people to like, who want to get involved in stuff and meeting people like you, all these different American organizers, UK organizers. Again, there's something about doing community in the way that congregations have done community, which draws out wonderful people. That's right. And I was struck when we were starting Sunday Assembly, I was telling people about it. Uh, and, and you tell them, people who went to church, went to the parish church, and you told them about Sunday Assembly, and they said, well, I go to church for the community. And if there was a thing like Sunday Assembly, I'd, be, I'd go to that, because I wouldn't have to do the religious nonsense as well. And that would be a really good thing. And many, many people, were, were, it seemed to me, were tolerating the religious aspect of church, because it gave them such a great community and connection aspect.
of course not everyone and and you know that i we're not we don't diss people who who believe but we we just want to offer that alternative i think uh and it struck me how many people said this oh if there was a sunday assembly i'd, I'd the, go to that it's also one thing with the life on this project of like offering these small groups uh so that's what we've been doing is that it has gone and appealed to people who like a few more people who are religious and it's been really interesting to have them involved as a because i think one thing with which religious people have is a better like language and set of skills around you know feelings that you might that you'd categorize as spiritual i think in the secular world we loads of people chase them by going to gigs or you go to festivals or you go to comedy or you have these experiences which make you feel the things that you'd feel in a church but they don't then say okay how can you go and what practices can you do in your day-to-day -day life to come bring that up there is there's there's this real skill and talent around turning those feelings into something which helps people build cathedrals there's no question at the end of that it's just like something that i've been noticing uh and then yeah and then your own background i think that is really interesting in that like that the work that you've done is is something that i've really lent on in when sort of doing facilitating and when doing my sort of community building work and it's two there's two things that you've been uh well there's actually three marks you always got a new project but uh, maybe to deal with them in order like your solutions focused work which is one thing and then you've got this host as leadership idea host leadership and then we can get to village in the city and uh or we go a totally different way around it'd be awesome to introduce people to this solutions focused idea because i find that really powerful it is so solutions focus uh, i introduced it from the field of therapy into the field of management and coaching and organizational change about 20 years ago and uh, paul z jackson and i wrote a book called the solutions focus uh, still selling still very much in print uh, if you want to go and have a look for it and the idea the, the idea of this is that it's uh, it's about creating change by building on what's working and moving towards what you want and it's not to do with trying to fix what isn't working and moving kind of uh, trying to solve what you don't want uh, and many many people think particularly in the sort of personal change area there's this thing that we have to work through some some pain and some you know shit and rubbish in order to start making progress and solution focused therapy and solution focused practice in general says no 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 you don't need to do that you just need to think about what do you want to have happen here and what's working already in your life that's kind of connected with that and moving you in that direction and then the final piece of it is take small steps um and people love the idea of big plans usually because big plans are important and expensive and it means i've got it all sorted but actually in a complex changing ambiguous world you never have it all sorted and if you think you have you're probably mostly deluding yourself i would say uh, so the, the surprisingly powerful thing seems to be to make small steps in the right direction and then mostly they turn out to be useful and then you learn something and even if they don't turn out to be useful you still learn something and you haven't wasted very much you haven't lost very much you can easily have another think and, and try something else and so this field has grown i'm thrilled to say from a kind of small corner of the therapy cupboard uh 20 or th started 30 years ago i've been learning it for 28 years uh we published our book nearly 20 years ago and it's continuing to expand as a method of working with people and organizations in all sorts of levels from individual coaching to working with teams to developing organizations to building communities uh, and the whole philosophy of if you talk about what's working it draws people together and if you talk about what's not working, it forces them apart because they all start to try and blame each other and pretend it's nothing to do with them. And, and what you, if you talk about what is working, people come together, they want to talk about that, they want to share it, they want to support each other. And the difference in vibe you get from those two, the, the, asking the question, what's not working and what's working, the difference in vibe appears in about a minute and a half. I mean, it's 
utterly, utterly instant that you see this starting to pull people together. Uh, there's a little bit of skill to doing it, a little bit of patience and a little bit of letting people kind of work things out for themselves and keeping them focused because people do want to slide off onto what's wrong, what's broken, whose fault is it, why are we all rubbish? You know, these are things that people love to talk about. But our job in solution focused land is to kind of gently keep nudging them back towards what do you want and <laughs> what's working? How do we find some small steps to build on that? How do we appreciate the work that people are doing? How do we appreciate the strengths and the skills and the qualities that people have? And uh, it's surprisingly powerful. And I discovered it in, say, in the, in the mental health library, effectively, in the early 90s. And I thought, wow, this is much too good to just be available to a few therapy people. This is much, much too valuable. And we, I want to get it out there into, you know, into the world of ordinary everyday managers. Coaching was just starting off at that time. And so I was a very early management executive coach as well. I've been coaching since before the ICF, the International Coaching Federation, was invented. Mm. So I've never, I've never joined it on the grounds that they're a bunch of the, Johnny uh, Come Latelys. The way you started <laughs> off, I, the IC, I was like, oh, I think it's going to go with the Ice Age there. The, uh, but uh, yeah, and what's really interesting that you were speaking about for listeners of the podcast, it really chimes with we had a neuroscientist on, and she said that like actually our brain rebels against big changes like we, there's one part of us which really loves that fantasy it's going to go and uh, happen but then the other thing that our brain really loves is stability it doesn't want to like things to be turned upside down because that's that's a sign for your uh the limbic system to sort of panic a bit that's the more uh emotional side of the brain and we can go and get into sort of how uh, exactly how accurate the triune model of the brain is, but I think there's very useful things within it. Yeah, I, I think there's lots of useful things in the triune brain model, and it's something I've used uh, many times in helping people slightly explain to their own satisfaction what's going on, which doesn't need to be true. It just needs to be true enough that lets them put it to one side to kind of start thinking about some other things. Uh, and so, so, you know, is it useful? Yes, definitely. Uh, and uh, that's the idea just to, if in case anyone hasn't heard about the triune brain model, it's the idea of there being kind of three brains in one. There's the, uh, there's the kind of um, the, the reptilian brain, which looks after all your kind of unconscious functions like breathing and heartbeat and fight and flight and stuff. Then there's the limbic brain uh, talks about, uh, looks after your emotion, emotional response and also has some functions in memory. And then there's the cortex, which is a thinking brain. And that's where you do all your sort of logical, rational uh, and detailed thought. And uh, the idea is that the, uh, the, uh, they come in that order. And if the reptilian brain is uh, uncomfortable or uh, with something, the rest of it, the rest of it's not going to be any use at all. Because you're just panicking and wondering what to do and trying to run away or trying to fight it or whatever. And uh, a lot of the other kind of more conscious, higher level things really get shoved aside in the franticness and it really made me think about actually why congregations are important because you it's a space where you feel safe it's a space where you can go and sing which both elevates you know connects you to the uh, higher parts of your brain there's uh, it was really interesting uh reading this neuroscientist book she said actually when you are experiencing joy your amygdala doesn't work because you are because you only experience joy when you're safe it would be bonkers for a a little squirrel to be like i'm having the time of my life as it's surrounded by wolves and so it just goes if you're enjoying yourself you're safe and so it can actually be used to get you into a better place and uh so then i found this like uh, another thing which is like a really useful uh Thing that i've found in your work and it's helped me in community building it's helped me working with companies and with individuals is this like host leadership uh model uh which you know particularly i think nowadays in communities there is there is this thing where people say oh no like particularly like like it's not about you step back totally it's all about the it's all about the other uh, people that you're serving put that like it's all going to be directed to them uh, and and i think this idea of 
being a host leader, sort of like is he able to thread the needle between putting other people first and being like and and actually going and leading. And so it'd be great to explain people to people. Yeah, thank you, Thomason. So I think you you've hit the nail on the head there because you have the here the three classical models of leadership are the hero leader who's stepping forward all the time and leading from the front and making things happen. Uh, or there's the servant leader who sort of leads from behind all the time, which is a lovely model, but it's very, very difficult to carry off. Or there is the host leader who I think combines the two. So hosts are people who receive and entertain guests. That's the dictionary definition. And if you imagine hosting a party, it's something we've all done. Uh, and the way that you bring people together in a way that helps them sort of put their minds at ease, feel that safe enough, uh, have a good time, connect with new people. Uh, is this idea of hosting is, involves both stepping forward and making some key decisions and helping for things to happen, and then also stepping back and letting people get on with it in the space that you've created. And so I always start my host leadership seminars with saying, are you going to step forward or step back next? Because that's a sort of moment by moment uh, uh, thing for a host leader. And I, I, this idea of leading as a host came to me one day in 2003, out of the blue almost. And I went to look for the book about how to be a good host. Because I thought, hosting and leadership, this is interesting. Where's the book on how to be a good host? And there wasn't one. There were books on how to have a good tea party, perhaps. And there were books on how to run a hotel. But there wasn't... How to be a hostess. Yeah, <laughs> yes. And there wasn't anything really that looked at the big picture of hosting. And, and this hosting and hospitality uh, have been part of every religious tradition, of every cultural tradition. Every society in the world places a value on entertaining guests and particularly on connecting with strangers and entertaining strangers and this is of course fundamental in community building as well it's not just about how do you host your mates it's how do you host and welcome the person you don't know and they may look rather alarming they might be very bedraggled they might uh you know they might have be, be soaking wet from the rain but are you going to are you prepared to welcome them into your community or not uh, and uh, and every spiritual tradition, every religious tradition, has this aspect of hospitality in it. And I had a whale of a time going and finding out all those connections uh, and putting them in the book, trying to work out what does a host do. And we came up with six roles that a host does. And uh, there's the book, by the way, is called Host, Six New Roles of Engagement for teams, organizations, communities and movements. And it's by me, Mark McCurgo and Helen Bailey. And it's half price on Amazon in the UK at the moment, 5.99, excellent buy. I mean, that is some top quality plugging there, Mark. I'm just gonna say it's, uh, he looked down, he had the book there. So when did you start reading the title? And you're like, I'm gonna go the, uh, if, if we ever put these on video, he's holding it up to the screen. Did you, did you, did you realize how far you were gonna go into the plug? No. Like as you started? Of course. No, you didn't, okay. you just got your- No, no, you, you, got, you, you, got you the... can't stop me, Sanderson. <laughs> very <laughs> I important. I love it, I love it's it. It's very important that people know where to follow up on all this excellent work that I've been doing. Yeah. It took me years and years <laughs> and years to do that. And you can have it in a few seconds for a couple of quid. So I think that's a great, <laughs> that's a great deal for you, everyone who's listening. Uh, but there's this it thing about very good book. there's this thing about you know, finding the connections with the different traditions, the different ways that different nationalities have of hosting. For example, did you know that um, uh, in the UK, uh, Western cultures, dinner tables are usually rectangular, and the host sits at the top, uh, looking at the door, so they can see who's coming in. But in uh, Asian Chinese cultures, the tables are round. Uh, and if you go to any Chinese restaurant, you'll see what I'm talking about. And the host traditionally sits with their back to the door so they can get up and defend the party against intruders uh, who come in, who come in through the door. So the, the whole sort of psychogeography of the dinner table is very, very different in those two cultures. And it was uh, so interesting to find all these different ways that people have of showing hospitality. Uh, and I think the more we can learn about other people's ways of doing hospitality, the more we can help to build 
multicultural and multi-respectful uh, societies. I, uh, that is a really good point about the different cultures. I heard this story and I think it sort of anthropologist or some, I could, I don't exactly know when it was, but, uh, an Englishman going through China and really wanting to be polite and really wanting to be respectful of uh, the culture. And he had learned that in order to be, you know, when you get served food in England, it's polite to finish it all. And then in China, it is, it's actually really rude to finish it all because it shows that your guests haven't, haven't given you enough food. And so apparently you leave some of the side. And so this led to some sort of situation like a French farce where the guy is constantly finishing him and the bowl, they think that they're being really rude. They go and get more food out. They're killing pigs from the neighboring farm, getting, he's eating them out of house and home. And uh, yeah, I don't know exactly how it stopped the food. The village ran out of food. He like, he died of overeating, but uh, yeah, it is those, the cultural differences, which can get us into, into trouble. And how's that helped you in your own life or in your, like, has it changed how you do things? Yeah, enormously, because I, I think I've, I've, in a way, I've always been interested in this. At the age of nine, I was facilitating my sister's birthday parties, sort of organising the games and seeing who had the prizes and introducing the rules and, and planning the programme and all that stuff. So in a way, I've been doing this all my life. But, but on the other hand, if you really dig into what being a good host involves, uh, it's it's not very heroic. It's it is very generous, but at the same time, it's retaining control because there are certain things that hosts can do that their guests can't, like declare the thing is over, um, uh, for example, and move things along, kick out guests, and, so, and in the end, it's the host's decision. Of course, it's a last resort, but but the host is the one who can throw out somebody from the party. Uh, no, the guests can't do that. So so the. These, the, um, so inventing these six roles, which are starting to become kind of used around the world in different ways, um, I think it shows that there is a way of leading in a serving way that nonetheless doesn't mean that you're giving away your, you know, your methods of control and your methods of influence. On the contrary, you, you can combine them very, very nicely. And indeed, people have been doing it forever and ever and ever, but nobody had really set down to put it into uh, into a framework until perhaps I came along. And what I really, again, love about it is there's a this idea that like it's not a democratic ideal, right? It is not a you know, you want to it's respectful of other people's voices. And it's it's about making sure that as many people as possible are included. But it is also about uh, you know there are some things you you know the party that you organized and want to run and and you know why that might look better over there than over there and you're listening to people but ultimately you've got a creative role in it which again the other guests don't have yeah so it, there is an element of it's my party and my rules and i'll cry if i want to sort of thing uh, and again only the, and of course hosts can flex their rules and their ideas but they have a choice about that uh, and so actually, I think being the host puts you in quite a potentially powerful position. And you have lots of choice about how much you let other people influence what, what you're doing. Uh, and of course, who you invite is a very, very uh, key uh, decision in all these things. Uh, and where you have it, this creating the right sort of space that supports the kind of thing you want. And this is something that never appears in conventional leadership books, management of space. But actually, uh, how you uh, how you set things up, where you do things, really makes an enormous difference on on the outcome. Uh, and it's things like round tables, or you know, or square tables, or are we in the office, or are we somewhere else, or whose ground are we on, or is it neutral, and who's there first, and who's welcoming who. All of this, and any diplomat will tell you this matters enormously. Um, but in organisational leadership, it's conventionally uh, rather overlooked. And I think it's a, it's a tool that we can, we can use very much to help things along in the way that we want them to develop. And I think this could segue nicely into talking about Sunday Assembly. And because the amount of time that I spent uh, going into places that wanted to host an event 
and then changing the layout of the room was one of those skills that I didn't realize I had a degree in until I saw how other people did it. Uh, because like if, when you're a stand up or like a musician, you will know you're just like, okay, do not, do not have the room layout like that. Those people are too close. Those people are too far away. And I'm trying to work out whether we had a podcast where we spoke about this or whether it's had a conversation with someone, but the amount of people you have, like whenever there'll be an event bright and people say, we got 130 responses. So we're going to lay out 150 seats in case another 20 people turn up and you're like, lay out 35 seats in case 75% don't turn up. And then if like if 10 more come along, you just go, oh my gosh, we, oh, who would have thought we're so oversubscribed. Ah, call the, call the press. Well, this is, this is a happening. And it's just totally different if you're taking chairs out of the cupboard to sit people down than if you're like trying to squidge them up from the back. And that stuff makes a huge, it makes, it makes a huge... an enormous difference. And I have a very strong memory of the very first Sunday assembly where this happened and there weren't enough chairs by any stretch. And I have a strong image of you bustling up the aisle with tiny, tiny children's kindergarten chairs <laughs> arms, about four inches high, which, which were the last chairs in the whole building. But nonetheless, we were going to put them at the front. You were going to put them at the front. Uh, and, and people were standing at the back and the balcony, which shouldn't have been had people on it, had people all over it. And, and it was just, uh, and the atmosphere was just this kind of, joyous here we all are together isn't this exciting rather than oh here we are at this very boring and well-organized uh, thing <laughs> <laughs> i think uh if if i go and think about the qualities that i bring to an event it will probably be making it not boring and uh, also not as organized as other people uh have it and my friend petri uh he was one of the people sitting on those little stools and he's six foot seven so he is He's two inches taller than I am, and his knees were around his ears. And I, yeah, I loved it. He did, they'd, him and his now wife, Jess, had come along because they were like, oh, I'm just going to support support his uh, new little venue. And they're like, what on earth is going on here? But So with host that, leadership, we, we have this saying, yeah. I'd just like to relate to this, which is the host is both the first and the last. The host is both the first and the last. and And that's true in a sort of everyday sense in that those have to be there first to set things up and make sure it's all organized and the things are laid out like you were saying and the host is also the last because someone has to clear up someone has to switch the lights off someone has to shut the door and lock it but it's also true in a much bigger sense in that the host has to be both the first and the last the host has to be the one who kind of decides to do something and initiate a thing and then in the end it all goes around and the host is is then thinking well you know being the last but you're also the first again and it goes around again and it's a hosting is a very cyclical episodic thing i think uh, whereas um i think heroism is is win the battle and it's all all right whereas hosting is about a cycle of things that goes around and around and it changes a bit and it adapts and it evolves but there's something about continuing with hosting that i think is a very valuable sense when we come to talking about communities and uh, secular congregations this has just made me think of something i've never asked you but uh i was as you were speaking i was reflecting that there's like so much that i've learned like getting into this uh area and has really helped me in my personal development, but it'd be great to know from you, like what is like in your own sort of personal learning about how to be a human, about how to cope with the stresses and strains of life. Like what are the sort of personal sort of development practices or work that you do or have found useful? That's a really interesting question, Sanderson. So Here's the thing. I spent the first 20 years of my life following my middle class parents two key guidance things, which were uh, do your duty and don't make a fuss. All right. And I spent the first 20 years of my life in sort of toleration mode, doing my duty and not making a fuss. And when I made a fuss, it didn't seem to do any good because I just got told to do my duty and, you know, be, be tidy and go to school and do your exams and do your music grades and 
you know what and what i wanted didn't never entered into it you had to do what other people thought you should do and it was only in my second year of being a physics undergraduate i uh, i suddenly realized that I, I was given the task to write an essay about uh, nuclear power this is 1980 now and the world was not full of uh, the world was full of acid rain at that time from too much coal burning and and i suddenly got gripped with nuclear power and i thought well this is something this is something i actually want to do and my whole life took off and i went from being a sort of middling middling student and not very good human being to being an absolutely top student and a much better human being because i was doing something that i actually wanted to do uh, i was just wondering whether you were going to give yourself the top human being like a top student and a top human being no i'm a woefully inadequate human being <laughs> as you know in many ways but 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 the, my whole life took off because i had this thing I, I wanted to do and i've been very fortunate i spent 10 years in the doing i did a phd uh, i worked in the nuclear industry i got to be the chief reactor physicist at a nuclear power station when i was 28 uh, mainly because it was closing down and uh, i got to be in nuclear power for 10 years then my power station closed and i but i became a management consultant because i did an mba degree in my spare time and then uh, at the age of 32 i quit my job or oh, i took early retirement as they had it <laughs> at, uh, at 32 and i since then nearly 30 years now i've been a self-unemployed mostly management consultant who can follow his own interests and that's in the most luxurious life sometimes it's very you know it's very pleasant sometimes it's quite hard but having the freedom and the flexibility to follow your own nose and your own interests and dig around in things that look as if they might be interesting to see what turns out and not have a you know a boss to telling me what to do has been the most amazing um uh, life to be able to have and i've been unbelievably fortunate to be able to do that and then what did you, because it sounds like that must have been some pretty heavy duty wiring of the brain, like to like un, unpick that. Was it just the stuff of a moment or was it something that you had to, like what sort of work did you do to make that? I, I, it still comes in because being the chair of Sunday Assembly Edinburgh, I've got an assembly to organise every every month and uh, I've got a duty to our community to help to do that. And so actually that's not an unhelpful thing as long as it's in the context of something you want to do, I think. Uh, and there's there's doing your duty because other people think you should do it. And then you've got to, you know, there's some hard thinking and some choices. But actually the things I learned uh, in the electricity industry about being a, a chief nu nuclear reactor physicist at a nuclear power plant. Nuclear power stations, you'll be glad to hear, are run very, very cautiously, very, very carefully. Uh, everything is written down, everything is documented, everything is thought about and picked over before you do it to see if it's going to be safe. Um, and there was a lot of very good learning for me in this kind of uh, um, thinking about stuff um writing things down making careful notes engaging other people you can't just on a nuclear power station go and do something because you think it needs doing you've got to get everyone involved and say look i'm thinking of doing this we're going to have this here's what's going to happen what do you think and so it's a culture of engaging other people to come to the best decision you can between you and that stood me in excellent stead ever since because that sense of it's it's vital to draw other people in because you get a better result and better work rather than trying simply to go it alone. And so I think in a way that I, what I learned there has kind of been with me ever since as well. Yeah, it wouldn't work with the uh, the old Mark Zuckerberg move fast and break things. Uh, I, I think we, we shouldn't way. let him near a nuclear power station, I would have said. Although it's, it's interesting. The trouble with the nuclear industry at that time was not that they were not good at handling nuclear safety, they're very good at handling nuclear safety, the British nuclear industry, but they treated everything as if it was nuclear safety. So shall we change the coffee in the canteen? Well, let's have an enormous meeting about it and so on. Uh, and and in, in a way, it held it back in some organisational ways, because it became very risk, very risk averse, even when it didn't matter. And there was quite a deal of, you know, trying to help people understand what really mattered, and what was perhaps a you could be a bit more experimental with and but the people who enjoyed working in the risk averse bit were were often not very keen on taking risks even with the coffee in the canteen or something like that 
So, so you know, that and also everyone was there for decades. So, so you had a kind of very, very, very stable workforce, which meant it was very difficult to introduce new things. Normally new things come with new people. Uh, and whereas if you, your workforce has all been there for 35 years already, trying to interest them in something new is quite, uh, quite, quite a challenge. And of course, in the modern world, this was 30, 40 years ago, in the modern world, people change jobs all the time. And that's, uh, there's much, much more natural flow of new ideas uh, in, in most places anyway, uh, which I think is a good thing. I don't know exactly. I don't think this has got any link to the nuclear power station, but I was thinking just moving on to your, uh, like, uh, another incarnation of your work. And this is like when you, you, you now are one of the, uh, as you said, did you say you're the chair of uh, Sunday Assembly Edinburgh? Or what has that given you in terms of, uh, you know, being like a really involved in this community? Like it's... Uh... Well, I was always involved in Sunday Assembly London from when it started, as we talked about. Then I moved, I moved up to Edinburgh in 2016. Uh, so after about four years of Sunday Assembly London, and we've been here now for five years. And I didn't come with the intention of being the chair. I just came along and thought I'd, you know, join the committee perhaps and play the saxophone a bit. But uh, when I got here, the, the committee were tired, I think, and they'd kind of been, been beavering away at it and uh, they were ready for a change. So <laughs> I was <laughs> handed the chair, the chairship uh, fairly quickly. Uh, and it's bit, and it, but it's really good. It, you meet all sorts, of, you have, not only have your colleagues at the Sunday Assembly who are all coming from a similar place about, you know, um, uh, community uh, and secularity, and non-religiousness, but you also engage with all the speakers, and every uh, uh, who every month you need a new speaker, so that gets you talking to all sorts of people, and you have the community to draw. And then there's the band, and we have a little band that plays for the music. We're in the back in the day when we could meet face to face, and I hope we will again. So it just gives you all sorts of interesting possibilities to connect with others in a sort of legitimate way. You know, if you can say, oh, I'm the chair of Sunday Assembly Edinburgh, well, I wonder if we could get you to come and speak at one of our uh, assemblies, is different to saying, oh, I'm just Joe Schmo, uh, and uh, I like your work. Um, uh, well, I don't know what to say next. <laughs> you know, you've got a way of connecting with people that's slightly purposeful, but in an interesting way. And often people haven't heard of Sunday Assembly, and they go, oh, that sounds interesting. Yes, I'd be delighted to come and talk. So, so that's it's it's just um, I find it very enriching, and I spent many I spent decades sort of having, as I worked as an international consultant, flying around and and being fortunate to work with people all over the world, and that was lovely, but often then getting home and finding uh, I have friends all over the world, but none in our street, <laughs> because I've been too busy in airport lounges, and uh, uh, and actually this focus on people in our street at least in our town, from the point of view of Sunday Assembly, uh, has just been a wonderful counterbalance. And it's something which I have uh, missed in, like if we moved to a slightly different part of town and that, you know, there's Sunday Assembly has been digital for a while, but we would often beat ourselves up at Sunday Assembly, uh, not being as diverse as the UK. And I think you really want to work hard to increase diversity, but at the same time, it's way more diverse than like most friendship groups, right? It's way more diverse than what normally happens, which is you've got your group of friends who might do similar things to you, like similar, go to similar festivals, similar restaurants, and, you know, be similar ages. But in fact, it's, it's having something which is intergenerational. I, I think that's such an important aspect, Sanderson. And one of the things that Sunday Assembly does almost better than anything else is intergenerational, interclass, to some extent, intercultural, and we're trying to welcome people from different, you know, traditions and ethnicities more now, uh, perhaps of focus on that. But it is, anyone is welcome. And that is really different to a kind of peer group of friends, where, as you say, you kind of, maybe you're kind of the same age, you do the same things, you're interested in the same things. And that's great too. People should do that. But there's great value to talking to people who are much younger than you or much older than you or, or come from a completely different background to you enormous personal value in in having that sort of broad connection and churches are one of the very few places where you can do that and i think that's why sunday assembly is so important one of the reasons it's so important 
is that it is one of the very few places you can get to a really potentially broad and inclusive group. Yeah, it's quite it's something which I'm still figuring out in terms of like these lessons that you get in internet marketing and talking about what it is. It's like, oh, I'm for left footed, uh, left footed jazz lovers in the Edinburgh area who uh, have, you know, buy hair dye. And it's like all about becoming because there's if you add all those people up, there's loads all over the world. But of late, I just really want to lean in more to that we welcome all who welcome all like this is the the point is that it is for people of different backgrounds and it is for people of different ages and and in the online space like you can't do things with kids in an easy way uh but like having that like trying to figure out at least for us in the life on this project how to go from people joining small groups to then how to go and join up locally, have, whether there be a Sunday assembly in their area already or a different uh, community, then yeah, it, it is about like it being a place for everyone, which is very, I think that's quite countercultural at the moment. Yes, yes. And I take, take your point about niche marketing on, on the internet and uh, people say, are you niche enough? And I think that's a great question if you're trying to talk to a global audience. Uh, so, but we're now leading in the direction of my new project, which is Village in the City, which is a thing I started in last year in 2020, uh, in the lockdown here in the West End of Edinburgh. Uh, the West End of Edinburgh is normally thought of as a kind of business and shopping area, but of course there are people living here as well. But normally we can't see each other because of all the commuters and the shoppers. But in the lockdown, all of a sudden they, they weren't here. And the only people you saw when you went out for your walk were the other people who lived here. And people started to communicate in a different way. And in our street, uh, a, an email list got set up very quickly and a WhatsApp group set up for the street and people sharing information about which shops were open and how you could get vegetables delivered and things like that in the beginning. And I thought, well, this is good. I'm getting to know my neighbours. I want more of this. Uh, and so I sort of went to, I looked for a Facebook group. There was one, but it only had two dozen people in it. I joined it, of course. Uh, build on what's working, you remember from the Solutions Focus. And uh, went and had a chat with the guy who was running it and said, how about we try and expand this? And so we paid a few pounds to get some leaflets made, stuck them through every door in the West End of Edinburgh. And today, this very day, our Facebook group welcomed its thousandth member in Edinburgh West End. Uh, and that's the basis of something. It's not the end. It's no, by no means the end, but it's the start. Once you've got a kind of working majority of your little neighborhood communicating with each other, now you've got the possibility to do things together. Whereas if there's no communication channel, there's no possibility of doing things together uh, other than being bold and sort of setting up a signpost and seeing who responds to it. So, and I thought, well, this is interesting. I've got host leadership. I've got solutions focus. I know something about this. I'm going to try and do this here. And I want to open up this work to anyone who wants to build their own neighborhood, their own village in the city, anywhere else in the world. And we've now got uh, over 20 neighborhoods kind of signed up with the project from North America to South America, across Europe, across the UK, really diverse bunch of people who want to learn together build we're all building our own neighborhoods but we're sharing resources i'm creating um, uh, videos and uh, interviewing experts and we have a podcast now monthly calls and i'm also uh, working on a book uh, with cormac russell who's quite a big name in the asset-based community development field which is another very interesting approach very key uh, akin to solution focus in that the asset-based community people say start with what's strong not with what's wrong which of course is absolutely up my street uh, and it's uh, in a way it's taken over my life it's um, uh, this village in the city thing we're online of course villageinthecity.net go and check it out everyone uh, lots and lots of free resources lots of ways to engage uh, we just started an online community uh, mighty networks based community for running courses and running, uh, connecting people together, you know, having all sorts of conversations about how do you create 
uh, a useful but small scale and my, my my working model for what is what constitutes a village in the city is it's a neighborhood and you can probably walk across it in 10 minutes it might only be a street it might be a couple of blocks but it's not the size of edinburgh <laughs> edinburgh has half a million people in it and we have one sunday assembly in edinburgh for half a million people and uh, in a way you could say i've reinvented the parish church model only for communities because in the old days parish churches were on patches that were not far off that size uh, the size of walk across it in 10 minutes or so but here's the thing with a village in the city you have a community banner that includes not only the church but it includes the mosque if there is one it includes the traders association it includes the knitting group it includes the running club it includes the uh, you know the the summer music weekend it includes all sorts of people who just meet when they're walking their dogs or having a coffee together outside the coffee shop um, and so in a way it's a kind of inclusivity is our thing but it's inclusivity on a scale of half a mile across <laughs> um, which is a really interesting way of looking at inclusivity uh, because you actually have a chance of connecting with most people in a patch that's half a mile across uh, or so uh, so uh, in a way maybe we're kind of going if sunday assembly was the antithesis of the church um, then you have the church you have sunday assembly but now you have something that actually includes both of those things but on a really local level and so we call it a village in the city that's really great and i love those things which again that's very much in that like as asset-based model of like looking what's out there already and it really so with the life on this project like the sort of thing that i looked at as like actually how can because sunday assembly you know starting a chapter is is really hard like that's the thing i've uh, the analogy i'm using at the moment is that uh, it's a bit as like people get in touch with like saying, oh, I'd really love the sound of this like church for everyone near me. And then they go online. It's like the first instruction is first start a church. And it's like as though you went on to Uber Eats and you went, I'd like a slice of pizza. And then you get given instructions on how to start a pizza hut. You're like, what? This seems to be like a, like quite a big difference between what I want and what I need to do to get there. And so what well, I, I looked at actually the small group model of like, getting people those live in Sunday assembly, we called them live better groups as something which is a, a unit which works in that small unit, but then has got the capacity to grow out of it. And it's, uh, and again, that because there are folk all over the world who want, who want this. And the question is, and there's so many interesting people in so many different spaces coming out with ways to do it. And Mark, I'm going to use this as an opportunity to wrap up and say thank you very, very much for speaking. And I think we had this conversation without really letting on that this is the second time that we've had it because I didn't record the first. Uh, and thanks so much for recording again. Thanks so much for really all you've done in my life. I it's been amazing it's so wonderful to be friends with you and to work with you and well, uh, likewise Silas, and i would say i feel much enriched for having met you and pepper and all the other sunday assembly people as well uh, and it's amazing what comes along if you keep going new things always emerge and there's always something interesting to be to be done and delved into i think Oh, well, thanks so much, Mark. Uh, everyone who's loved what Mark said, there's going to be details in the podcast notes. Thank you so much. And uh, thanks for listening, people. There's going to be more waffle in about a minute. Well done for staying to the outro of the podcast where what do I talk about? You know, it's just a little bit of a summary of uh, where we are at the moment. And Right now, uh, did I mention this? Like there is lots and lots going on and that is very good, but it is also slightly overwhelming for me. Uh, uh, long time listeners will know that I'm an ADHDer, so I like to try new things and now I'm worried whether I've tried too many new things, but on the, you know, things really do seem to be clicking. We're getting more people who are joining the community, 30 people, maybe 25, 30 people, I think will join by the end of next month and 
Yeah, and they're, they're doing small groups. The whole idea is to start small, but then to grow outwards. And yeah, the, the next thing that we're going to be looking at is like how to help people go from being part of a small group to getting people reaching out to people who are near them, which is seems like there's a bit of a worry there where you're like, oh, we don't want to be the people who knock on doors. And like this whole idea of, uh, you know, if you're at all involved in the business world or the online digital space marketing stuff, it's always like create brand ambassadors who will spread you via word of mouth. But if you start doing that around something which is like connected to community and is trying to mimic the church or at least like take the best things from it, you know, then, then people are like, oh, really? Oh, well, you're going to create evangelists. So, but, and then there's even that, like, if you in tech, everyone's like, oh, we've got our tech evangelists. We've got our brand evangelists. The word is totally usable now in its bastardized form. But if you want to use it in a way which is sort of more directly linked to sort of purpose and to creating community, then it now it is a dirty word. So anyway, that is the stuff that I am thinking about and working on at the moment. Um, I always say when we turn this into video, but I never turn this into video. I haven't yet. I went and uh, painted my studio, which is quite exciting. It's got like a luminous LED beam behind it, which I, I saw it on YouTube and I thought that looks quite cool. Now, I don't know whether it's cool or super naff. So uh, anyway, that's the other thing that I've been doing. Uh, thanks so much for listening. Uh, thanks to my co-host James Croft who hasn't been able to make this one but buddy you're always in my heart then there is by the way I said that in a way which makes it sound he's ill he isn't he's doing great uh, then there's Mav Shetty our producer there is Roman Rapak and Miro Schott who made the music that you are listening to right now